Next item this morning, <clears throat> number 452, Night with Evan Pinion. 452. <clears throat> then Brother Sam Moore will have our Lord's Supper service. Night with Evan So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you, say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. But if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered over by the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate answered him and said, so are you a king? Jesus replied, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. The part of the, uh, part of the truth that, this, that Jesus is speaking of here is partaking of the Lord's Supper. During Passover, Jesus and his disciples sat together for a meal. And this is the last time that all twelve apostles would be together before Jesus returned. Uh... uh in John 6, starting in verse 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the, uh, on the last day. And in the gospel account of Luke, Jesus says, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us give thanks for the bread.
Dear Lord, we come to you uh, thankful for the sacrifice that your son made. A sacrifice that he didn't, have to, he didn't have to make for us, but because of his love and his mercy, he chose to give his own life that we might have the chance of eternal life for you. And in your son's name we pray, amen. Again in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying that the cup is poured out for you in this new covenant in my blood. The sacrifice that Jesus paid with his own blood on the cross made it so that we would never have to sacrifice using the blood of lambs again. Instead, he, the Lamb of God, sacrificed himself for our sins, a burden that we would not have to carry on our own. Let's give thanks for the cup. Father, again, we are thankful for sacrifice that your son made for us and that the cup that represents the blood of Jesus flowed that we so that we might not have to make a sacrifice of our own accord again but instead your son made the ultimate sacrifice for us in your son's name amen Separate from the Lord's Supper, we've been given an opportunity to give as we have prospered. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we have been, we have been blessed beyond our means. We, are, we, we have been given the fortune to live in a time and a place where often we take for granted what we have and are given much more than we, are needed to, uh, than, than we need. And you've told us that to, you've, you've shown to us to give beyond beyond what we've been given, and to serve when we can. In your son's name we pray, amen. Let's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 52, Blessed Be the Name. And Connie Miller and family are going to take care of Children's Bible Hour for us. So we will have a Children's Bible Hour. <clears throat> At this time, you may go then. 52, Blessed Be the Name. <clears throat> oh, praise to Him who reigns above in
invitation to him this morning, number 103, come to Jesus, number 103, this time Brother Chris. Good morning. It's good to see each one of you with us this morning. Uh, we are going to see the ark, uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. And so I thought, what an opportunity. If you've never been, uh, it is worth seeing. I think it's worth seeing a couple of times in your lifetime. Uh, but we're going on June 25th. We're leaving here at 8.30 in the morning, and we want you to come with us. And uh, so today, we're going to walk through some of these thoughts uh, about the ark. I just wanted to teach through some of the things that maybe might run across your mind uh, as you see uh, the, the recreation of Noah's ark, at least what they think it possibly could have looked like uh, in a couple of Saturdays. I wanted to walk through some of these questions with you. So grab your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be in Genesis 6 and 7 this morning as we talk about and think about the ark. Genesis chapter 6 and 7. When, uh, when you're there, you're going to be struck by a couple of different thoughts. One of the thoughts uh, is, is this. The ark reminds us that God judged the world once and that he will do so again. Um, that's what the, the promise of the rainbow really is, isn't it? Uh, that he's never going to destroy the earth again via water, but he will destroy the earth again. Uh, he will judge the earth again. He's not going to do it by water next time. Next time it's going to be by fire, right? So we know that he will judge again. Sometimes we think, oh, God is a loving God, and so he is not going to condemn people, that, that judgment will not come, but the flood would have us understand otherwise, wouldn't it? Judgment is coming. Judgment has come in the past, and it is coming in the future as well. Genesis chapter 6 and seven. I want you to see a couple of passages here. Look in Genesis 6, starting in verses 5 through 7. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Think back to Genesis chapter 1 when God created everything. What did he say? He looked out on all of his creation and he said what? Every day it's good, right? Now in Genesis 6, he looks out at his creation and says something different, doesn't he? He looks out at creation and says it is not good. It is corrupt. It is perverted. So he starts decreating. He starts unraveling his creation. Look again in Genesis uh, 6, verse 7, and notice the uh, chronological order that Moses puts this, this in, this, this, uh, this, this sentence in. He will... Blot out man and animals, which were created on what? Day six. They were created last, weren't they? So he's going to, create, he's going to decreate man and animals. He's going to uh, destroy creeping things and birds of the heavens. He's uncreating. Later, he's going to 
make the, the waters in the heavens and the waters on the earth that he want, at one time in Genesis 1 separated. In Genesis 6, he's going to put those two back together. We're familiar with the fact that the fountains of the deep, he opened up the earth. And the fountains of the deep, of the, deep the waters that are underneath uh, the, 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 the earth, he ripped open the earth and those waters started gushing out and as well as it raining for 40 days and 40 nights. And so that expanse that he at one, one time were united, he pulled apart and made one in heaven, one on earth. In the flood, he puts them back together. And so there's water everywhere. He is uncreating. He's unraveling his creation. This is the extent to which this evil, this sin has driven him. If you think sin is not harmful, if you think sin is not hurtful to God, and it's not hurtful to you, go back through and read Genesis 6 and 7. Then visit the ark with us, uh, and on June 25th, you see a completely different side of the story, don't you? A loving God can, has, and will judge. And he is willing to unravel creation to do that. What? Stop and think for a second. Maybe, maybe you've already thought about this. But last time we were at the ark, it, it kind of crossed my mind. What exactly did the ark, what exactly did the flood accomplish? What, what did it do? Because... It didn't do some things, right? It didn't cleanse people, right? It didn't extricate our hearts from the rebellious attitude against God, did it? It didn't force us into obedience to Him. It didn't make us want to obey Him. So what did the flood do? What did the ark, what purpose did it serve? It puts you on notice, it puts you on notice that judgment has come and that it will come again. Some of you have already done this, but you, you put in your retirement, right? My stepdad did this uh, last year. He, uh, he set a date when the last day he was going to work would be. And he was a 911 dispatcher. So if the city didn't replace him, guess what? You dialed 911 and you got a busy tone. <laughs> so... If they didn't replace you for your job, your job just doesn't get done, right? Because there's a day that you've appointed where you said, I will not be there that day. I'm, I'm done with the job. You've appointed a day, right? God has also appointed a day in which he will judge mankind. It will come. It has already come in the ark, in the flood. We're reminded of that every time we think through the significance of the flood and the ark. Judgment has come, and he will do so again. I need to be in the only safe spot, right? Flip back over to Genesis chapter 7, starting in verse 18. Genesis chapter 7. Let's start in verse 18. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. It's about 20 feet. So think of the highest mountains. Wherever the highest mountain was um, in, the, in the, the, the world before the flood, wherever that mountain was, was covered 20 feet thick, 20 feet deep with water. So you couldn't even stand on the highest mountain and be safe. He took away all the safe places. When this type of thing happens, when a flood happens, you know, you know what people do, right? If you've ever been in a flood or, or known someone that's been in a flood, you know what people do, right? My hometown was hit by a flood last year, about August. Um, and I can tell you exactly what people do. They find a high point, right? If they can, they find a high point. Some of the people there were in the cars uh, as the tidal wave came in. There's a tiny little creek that when I was there was just, I mean, just a barely a creek. But when it rains, and especially when it gets dammed upstream somewhere, that thing turned into a tidal wave, and it wiped out houses and cars. And you found houses that were moved off their foundation and moved over here. You found cars that were just blasted out of the way. And so, you know what people did? They found high grounds, looking for a way to get up out of the water. I'm sure people did that in Noah's day as well. But it didn't work. There was no effect there because even the highest places, the highest mountain you could have gotten to, if you could have all fit on top of it, it would not have mattered because even that spot was 20 feet underwater. This judgment was complete, was universal. No one escaped. It's terrifying, right? When you stop and contemplate the judgment of God, it's terrifying. You need a safe place, right? You need a safe spot where you can ride out this judgment. Well, there's only one safe place, right? Listen to the rest of Genesis 7. Starting in verse uh, 22. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Go back through and look at how many times he says, blotted out. Maybe your translation says something different. But go back through and look at how many times he says that word. He says it something like four times in three verses. What does that word mean, do you think? It's the idea of an eraser cleansing something. You've written on paper, I'm sure, and made a mistake. And maybe you're unlike my children who just kind of scribble out the mistake. Maybe you flip the pencil over because you're aware that it has an eraser. <laughs> Maybe you flip the pencil over and erase the mistake. And if you do it well, you can't even tell that there was ever a mark there, right? That, that's what this idea of blotted out means. And Second Kings, he would use it, uh, this word, this, this specific word, he would use it for cleaning a plate. You ever put a plate in the dishwasher? Uh, maybe you'd had spaghetti the night before. So you put your plates in the dishwasher, turn it on. The next morning you get up, and there's still some spaghetti stuck to the plates. What do you do? You wash it again, right? 
That's exactly what he's saying with this word. There's not a trace of life left anywhere. This judgment was complete. Look at in verse 23, he says, every living thing. Some translation says, every living substance. It's only used of the destruction caused by the flood and the destruction that was caused by Nathan, uh, by Datham and Abiram's uh, rebellion against Moses. When God opens up the earth and he swallows them, he only uses this word those, those two times, those two instances where every living substance, everything that belonged to life, everything that was alive is just gone, obliterated. And you couldn't even tell that it was once there. There was nothing left. Just like the spaghetti on your plate the night before. You can't even tell you ate spaghetti, right? It's been washed. It's been blotted out. It's been erased. That's what he says about creation here. It was completely destroyed. Nothing was left. There was no safe place except on the ark, right? That was the one safe spot in which eight souls, Noah and his family, were saved. (coughs) But if you weren't in the ark, you were under God's condemnation. So one of the things that you will no doubt think of as you enter the ark and as you look through some of the exhibits there is, the ark reminds us that God judged the world. He's going to do that again. He said he will, right? Just like here in Genesis 7, he eventually got fed up with mankind and all the evil and sin that was running rampant in the world, it finally reaches its peak. And a righteous and holy God cannot be part of something that is sinful. And so he destroyed, he condemned, he judged. A lot of times in our culture, you'll hear people say, well, a loving God can't do that. A loving God wouldn't do that. He is loving, right? There are passages like John 3.16. He so loved the whole world that he gave his only... He sacrificed himself so that you could have relationship with him. He is loving 100%. He is a God who is defined by love, right? This is true. This is biblical. He is love. He is also holy. And these two thoughts... If you were to, I assume, pit them against each other, His holiness will win out. It did in the flood, and it will at the end of time. Impugning upon His kindness and His grace and His forgiveness is not a good game plan. You remember in Romans 6, Paul would make the same argument, right? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you remember Paul's emphatic response? Certainly not. Paul shouts that out. The flood shouts it out too. A loving God can, has, and will judge the world. It doesn't mean he's not loving. It means that he's holy too. And that this righteous God can't be a part of sinful people. His Holiness demands discipline. It demands 
judgment. It doesn't take anything away from His loving. But there's another component that a lot of us have missed. And it's His holiness. Loving God can, will, and has judged the world. Another thing you're probably going to recognize as you go through the ark is how vast this thing is. I've done the lesson before uh, where I walk through and teach you how, how big it is. We'll come back to the picture in a second, but this one, uh, I've done this lesson several times and, and I've walked myself through it, trying to envision how massive the ark would have been. It's bigger than a football field. It's longer than a football field. Most ancient <clears throat> ships uh, were 170 feet long, right? About 170 feet long. Um, they, they've done this research. They've unearthed some of these ships. They found some of this stuff. And they, they've, they've looked at these, these massive, old ships. And these things were, were considered marvels of the ancient world. Uh, they were around 170 feet long. The ark is 450 feet long. Those ancient uh, ships could have held around 4,000 pounds of cargo. And like we said, they were considered by everyone, widely considered as marvels of the known world. The ark could hold an astounding 15,000 tons of cargo. Right? This thing is huge. You don't grasp how big it is until you've seen it. Like I said, you can go back through and you can read the instructions God gave Moses, or God gave, excuse me, Noah, that Moses recorded for us. But we don't really know what this thing looked like. Whether it was a box or whether it looked like this, and all those things we can talk about later if you'd like. But we know the measurements. And still, the measurements are right on point for a seafaring boat to just go. If you make it wider or taller, even just a little bit, by percentages, it tips over or becomes not seaworthy. But this one is, by modern day standards, it's perfect. It's perfectly suited to do what it was supposed to do. And in comparison to ancient boats, it blows them out of the, It's not even a comparison. This one is by far more massive. So you'll sit in the parking lot as you drive up to the park uh, encounter, the one in Kentucky. Uh, you'll sit in the parking lot and think, several thousand years ago, somebody was looking probably from a hill really far away and noticed this old guy building a boat that was just enormous. And they had to think, what are you doing? You think they ever went up and asked him what he was doing? I bet they did. It took him 120 years to build this thing. I wonder how many people walked up to him and said, what's this thing do? You know, like, what's the purpose of this thing? Because up until this point, from what we're told, there had never been rain, at least not in any substantial amounts like, like it's coming. They probably didn't have boats. They do now. So I can just envision seeing this monstrosity on a plane somewhere. They're on a hill looking down at this massive construction. 